Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut, this is Storied History, and this story is about the origins of smuggling plants across the Rio Grande from Mexico into the United States. The specific plant that I'm referring to is native to northern Mexico and the southwestern United States. Uh, it is illegal to cross the border with it, and the workers who work with it refer to it as the weed. But it's not weed. It's not marijuana. It's not a drug. It's not a narcotic at all. In fact, it's legal in both the United States and Mexico. It's just illegal to cross the border with it. And it's called Condalia. Condalia is a flowering plant native to northern Mexico and the southwestern United States. The scientific name is Euphorbia antisilivatica, uh, because it is still used occasionally as a home remedy. A, you brew the tea and you drink it, and it is, well, antisilivatica, antisyphilis. Does it work? Probably not, but that's where the name comes from. What Candelia is known for, what it is real, is that it is a wax-producing plant. When it is fully grown, it looks like two or three foot long uh, pencils that are just kind of sticking up out of the ground uh, with flowers on the end. These little pencils are densely clustered. They are essentially leafless stems, and they are absolutely covered with wax that the plant produces to protect the water from drying out. So the wax protects the water, and because that's its purpose, the wax is actually very heat resistant, so it doesn't just melt and run off the, uh, the plant itself when the sun gets very hot. Uh, because it is heat resistant and kind of a hard wax, it is very valuable in manufacturing processes. And that's where this story really begins. It is useful for very many, many things. If you've ever worn shoes or even chewed gum worn makeup, or even washed your hair frequently, that you have probably encountered Condalia wax in some way or form. But even though it is incredibly useful, it cannot be cultivated. Literally, every time they have ever tried, the plant will grow just fine, but it doesn't actually produce the wax, and it's the wax that's important. So instead of cultivating it and growing this on a mass scale, this industry kind of grew up around the Mexican-American border where poor families would harvest the plant, produce the wax, and then sell it uh, for refining. Uh, this kind of cottage industry really grew up and then blew up around the beginning of World War I. So as American troops go off to fight in Europe, they needed tents, and those tents needed to be waterproof. Condalia is absolutely perfect because it's a hard wax, but it's not too hard, so it doesn't crack when it uh, you have to fold up the tents. And it's very heat resistant, so you can stay in the sun, and it will maintain its waterproof ability uh, rather than losing it over time like some of the other lesser waxes, so to speak. Without going into incredible scientific detail, uh, basically you cut the plant down, you cut the two to three foot stems of the plant, you pile them up, and then you boil them in a mixture of water and acid, sulfuric acid being the most common uh, chemical that is used. 
The boiling creates this foamy wax at the surface. And you skim that off, let it cool, and there's your wax. It gets purified and then it's cooled and hardens into little cakes that look like wax, uh, kind of an amber color. And they're taken into refiners to made into dozens and hundreds of different products, including chewing gum and cosmetics uh, very, very frequently nowadays. There's big money to be made in the refining and in the sale of Condalia, although not so much for the workers, as they are still, to this day, very poor, kind of indigenous people uh, that utilize whole families to go out and try to make a dollar or two per pound. Nowadays, back then, you're looking at about ten, you know, five to ten cents per pound. The men and the boys would collect the Condalia, the women and the men, Using sulfuric acid and water would refine it into a saleable product. After World War I, the industry does not collapse, but there's still a lot less demand because the U.S. Uh, government, U.S. Army, is not buying up mass amounts of this stuff to waterproof tents. So the price fluctuates. The bottom end was about uh, 5 to 10 cents, and then after World War I, about 12 cents and up to 50 cents a pound during the 1920s and 30s. But the real wrinkle, the real change, and what makes this a much more interesting story uh, comes in 1937, and this is the actual roots of the smuggling. The Mexican government established the Banco Nacional de Comercio Exterior, and I'm very sure that I have mispronounced that. I do apologize. So this organization, the El Banco, is based in Mexico City, and its purpose was to, officially its purpose, was to stabilize the Condalia industry and look out for the little guys and help them subsidize them a little bit and encourage the new growth of the industry. All of these things are, it's all well and good to say that's what you're doing. In practice, it's, it is absurd uh, for very one specific reason. You can't cultivate this. You can't encourage the industry because the plant grows wild and the only usable form of the plant grows wild. So you can't subsidize cultivation because cultivation doesn't work. You're also not going to be able to you're also not going to be able to subsidize the producers because they are living hand to mouth unregistered in the wilds of northern Mexico in the mountains along the rivers. So instead of trying to subsidize them by cutting them a check for the kind of like the way we do in America where we just give the farmers money. Instead, the way that El Banco said that they were going to help the little guy was to create middlemen. And those middlemen were based in Mexico City. So very far away from where the little guys actually live and work, uh, which is a real problem because if you're transporting this stuff and you don't have vehicles, or even if you don't have vehicles and you have to across an entire country, it's going to be a lot more difficult, time-consuming, and expensive. So, El Banco established laws demanding that all Condalia produced in Mexico is sold to El Banco, who would then sell it to the Americans for refining and further production. But not the refiners in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California. No, their primary customers were in New York City. Were they refining Condalia in New York City? No, of course not. They were just other middlemen that had been set up to try to take money off the production 
in their own way. So it becomes illegal to take this refined product out of Mexico. And in theory, El Banco would give you more money, but in practice, no, they didn't, not at all. In fact, it was about one half. If you're on the border between the United States and Mexico, and you're making Condalia wax, there are Americans just across the border that are offering you twice as much money as El Banco does in Mexico City. So what are you going to do? Transport all the way across the country? It's hundreds of miles away. You get half the money, and you've got to be gone for quite some time. Or, cross the river, sell it to the Americans. So they did. That's exactly what they did. That's what actually what most of the producers did. You get more money, it's much, much closer, and it's legal again in America. It's not, for the Mexicans, it's smuggling, but for the United States, for the Americans, it's just importing. It's on the same legal status as tomatoes. You literally could walk up to a police officer in these little border towns and say, hello, officer, I have 50 pounds of candelia wax and I'm trying to sell this to someone. Could you tell me who is buying? The police officer would look at you and say, sure, it's Joe down the street at the general store. It's on Main Street. Make a left. When you hit the big oak tree, you can't miss it. It's completely, totally free and legal. And you get double the amount of money. So they were doing this. They were smuggling it. A lot of this. In fact, up to 1,700 tons a year of Condalia wax was being smuggled across the border into Texas, mainly Texas, uh, but the, anywhere around the southern United States. And the Americans weren't trying to stop this at all, because again, totally legal. After El Banco set themselves up, the middlemen, World War II happens. In World War II, they still needed tents, and those tents still needed waterproofing. And Candelia Wax was still the best. So during World War II, there were many, many, many small-time buyers and refiners kind of camping out or hanging out in these little towns. Every little town on the border had a buyer for Candelia. And they were advertising, literally. There are signs in the fronts of these some of these stores. We buy Candelia wax. Nosotros compramos Candelia. And everybody's happy. Well, no, not everybody. El Baigo was not happy. These are the middlemen, and they want their cut. And their cut was large. If the producers are producing the same amount of Candelia, but receiving half of what they would pay if they go through El Banco, then El Banco's taking at least half of the entire value. So El Banco begins to crack down on the smuggling. And this is really the first uh, instance, first time, where the Mexican federales, uh, or in this case the forestales, were the enforcement agents. This is the first time that they are really trying to stop an industry that has grown up a smuggling uh, that is now growing up along the border. Before, there was some smuggling, but it mainly had to do with uh, import-export and alcohol, and not just tequila during Prohibition, but really going back to uh, even the rum, uh, rum runners way, way, way back when. And I'm going to do an episode on the history of rum at some point, because it really is kind of fascinating. 
But this is the first time that the Mexican government is really trying to put a stop to it. So the Fostales, the federal rangers, what they're doing is they will go into these mountains and patrol in trucks. And these trucks are pulling trailers. And in the trailers are horses. The horses are fully saddled up, watered, fed, ready to go. Where the trucks will spot the smoke in the mountains, they pull over, they mount up on the horses, and they attack the Condalia producers, uh, similar to the way the U.S. Treasury agents would attack the Appalachian bootleggers. The Forstalis will shoot the burros, shoot the five-gallon, uh, shoot the 55-gallon storage drums so you couldn't use them, burn the pack saddles, burn the huts, and confiscate the wax. The penalty for actually making Condalia illegally without a permit was anywhere from six months to two years, depending on whether or not you were one of the foot soldiers or, or one of the top guys. What really made these producers angry was that more often than not, much more often than not, in fact, almost every single time that the government agents uh, raid these camps, they just keep the wax for themselves. They go across the border themselves and they sell it. So they really are just bandits. There's no difference in the minds of the peasants between the men who come at night in trucks with official badges, shoot the burrows, burn everything, take the wax, sell it for their own profit, and the men that come without badges take the wax and sell it for their own profit. In fact, it would be better to be raided by the actual bandits because they're not going to kill your burrows and then ruin this entire equipment because they may want to rob you later. So there's no reason for them to destroy your livelihood when they're robbing you of a few pounds of wax. So over the course of the 1940s and the 1950s, the smuggling became a growth industry. The smarter smugglers would do these, uh, run, make these runs at night. They would go through the deep canyons. They would have pathways that they would pass down within families. This is how you get through the mountains. This is how you cross the border. This is where you go, and this is the time to do it. You don't do it on the third week of the month. You do it uh, at the new moon when it is fully dark outside, and you learn how to navigate in the dark without flashlights, that sort of thing. They were making somewhere between uh, 5 and $0.10 cents per pound just to smuggle. That's, what the, that's the cut that the smugglers were taking. They got very good at it, and the, and the borough trains going across the borders got bigger and bigger and bigger. When it was just one or two people transporting one or, one or two packs, it's, oh, that's one thing. Later, as it becomes more dangerous, uh, they do them in bulk because it's a lot more efficient and you can get a lot more money per run. So they would have burrow trains of up to 100 burrows transporting 100 to 200 pounds each. So the smugglers become very good at this and they kind of pass these secrets down. And some decades later, some of the Mexican drug lords, specifically one guy named Pablo Acosta, their families get their start by smuggling condalia. They're not smuggling drugs, they're not smuggling cocaine, they're not smuggling marijuana, they're not smuggling alcohol, they're smuggling wax.
Pablo Acosta, who was a fascinating individual right on the border and definitely a definitely a drug lord in every real sense of the word. His father got his start as being the most successful Condalia smuggler in the area. In fact, his father once got into an actual gunfight with the Forstales in the mountains above the river village of Santa Elena. No one was killed in that shootout, but the Forstales got the message that the Acosta family would fight back, and maybe you should just leave them alone, which they did. Hence why the Acosta family became the most successful Condalia smugglers in that part of the border. And it's still happening. I mean that literally. It's still illegal to smuggle this across the border, but still completely illegal in the United States. And so there are still, to this day, people that will harvest the plants in northern Mexico, pack up the borough trains, or more often than night, pickup trucks, I guess now, move them through the rough mountains, and go down to the valleys at night. It's common now for the Condalia buyers to do these things at night and to have ten dollars to $20,000 in cash ready to go to pay for wax that's arriving from Mexico. By the 1970s, a system of bribes along the border between the United States and Mexico had become so formalized, although not formally, that the people wanting to do this already knew who to pay ahead of time. One man described a modern-day sale in this way. His partner and he went to camp at a prearranged location in Big Bend National Park long after dark. They were staying up with a low campfire. The moon set, so it was full dark. And about a mile away, they saw a torch, uh, they saw a plant catch fire. It wasn't a, a big bonfire, and it definitely wasn't a campfire. Uh, it wasn't an electric flashlight. It was a torch that was lit, kind of waved in a short little arcs, and then put out. So they knew that within a few minutes, the group would be there. About 10 minutes later, a single individual walks into the camp. He talks to them briefly. He scouts around, looks around, makes sure that everything is okay, and that there's no surprises to be had. And then about 10 to 15 minutes after that, a little packed train of burrows was loaded with the wax. Comes into camp. The burlap sacks are unloaded and the bargaining begins. The sacks are opened. The quality of the wax is inspected. Uh, sometimes the producers will try to cheat you. They'll put rocks in the bags. You have to pull those out. Or sometimes they will actually take rocks and cover them with wax. you got to get rid of those too. Finally, the wax is loaded up on a truck and driven to a refining place where it is mixed with wax that was produced on this side of the border or that had been produced officially through El Banco. A big wax deal could be ten dollars to $20,000. It's a bizarre little intersection, kind of almost a chance thing. This little way of life will go away if they ever come up with a way to cultivate this on a large scale. But right now, it's still, it's still there. It's still happening. It's a little strange intersection of history and fate. It's a kind of a throwback to these cottage industries the way they used to be. I honestly can't think of anything else in the modern world that has so varied uses, but is completely wild and never cultivated. And this is not going to stop, because there's still a huge market 
for this. High-end cosmetics and face creams, con hair conditioners still use this stuff because it's very good. Now, what about the smuggling? Will that ever go away? Probably not. I mean, in theory, El Banco could just relax the restrictions and all of a sudden it becomes much more like a regular industry. Sure, they could. Uh, but that would mean that some very, very wealthy people in Mexico City who get a lot of money for doing absolutely nothing wouldn't have that free money coming in. So it could happen, but don't hold your breath. Unless you're making gondolia, then do hold your breath because breathing those sulfuric acid fumes are very, very, very bad for you. If you're curious about this, there are several videos on YouTube where it looks like some of the producers have actually taken the video to these little camps and just kind of talked to the people that are making it. You can see the vats. You can see the, the wax being skimmed off. You can listen to them joke around. You can see the people that are making it. That's not to say that they're criminals because, again, legal to make in Mexico, just illegal to cross the border with it. Now, were they the smugglers on the video? No idea, and I would never accuse them, especially if they're from that Acosta family. I'm Giles Chestnut. This has been Storied History. I do hope you have enjoyed it. There will be others. I am eventually going to do one on Pablo Acosta himself. Uh, and I would very much like to do kind of a longer form, a humorous version of the history of Mexico in the same way that I've done one on uh, the history of New Orleans. But that is a pretty big undertaking and is taking a lot more time than I initially thought. But I will be working on that and other things. So if you hit the subscribe button, when I get the next story, I will give it to you. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and recorded by Charles Chestnut and edited and produced by Seamus O'Connor. Please subscribe.